Welcome, all you happy warriors. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. You heroic men going to work early every morning, regardless of whether you feel like it. Disciplining yourself and improving yourself. Watching over your spouse and children if you have them. And taking care of business, generating cash flow. And doing whatever your head tells you to do when your head tells you it must be done. You who ignore your heart's desire to indulge the body's seductive whisper, instead you boldly heed the clarion call of responsibility to those you are strong enough to support and brave enough to care for. You are the noble knights defending the fortress of civilization against the hungry hordes of scheming and surging savages trying to invade and conquer what you and your fathers have built. The barbarians know that even after they destroy the civilization you built, as they wretchedly crawl through its wrecked ruins, they will live better than in anything they could ever have built themselves. Only you stand between the nightmare of socialistic slavery and the bright hope of tomorrow. And you, beautiful and brave women, resisting government's treacherous proposal to marry it rather than accepting a golden ring from one clear-eyed man dreaming of a shared tomorrow, you gorgeous and courageous women who smilingly and graciously carry the load of work, marriage, and family, inspiring your man to greatness and nurturing your young ones to moral maturity as well as physical. Yes, you men and women, you happy warriors who do all this and have done all this. Yes, you are the natural audience of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. You are the audience I devotedly serve, recognizing that every day that I can bring you the helpful, life-affirming insights of ancient Jewish wisdom, well, that's another day of privilege for me because you are not a tennis ball floating down the gutter of life. You have your hand on the steering wheel of your existence. As William Ernest Henley's great poem Invictus ends, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Because you are not tennis balls floating down the gutter of life, it is indeed my honor to serve you all and my delight to welcome you to another episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Yes, that's right. This is the only show in the entire digital universe that reveals how the world really works. And uh, on our website, we have a page, a, a page called Ask the Rabbi, where every week we take another question that people ask us, and uh, we answer it. And one of the questions was, why do I speak of happy warriors? And so I gave a very full answer and a full explanation there. But the, the, the basis of it is, look, um, there is such a thing in the world as spiritual gravity. Spiritual gravity is the natural resistance that God built into the world 
to fight every good thing you want to do and every positive thing you want to accomplish. Now, you might ask, why did God do that? And that is a theological question which just doesn't interest me very much because uh, the good Lord has not shared with me or confided in me his motivations about many things. But uh, all I'm concerned about is that it is a reality. And it is a reality whether you believe in God or whether you're an, an agnostic or an atheist. It makes absolutely no difference because every human being knows that whenever you try and do something good about your life, it's hard. Whether it's on the physical front, exercising is hard. Sitting on the sofa watching television is easy. Dieting is hard. Going to the refrigerator and gobbling another chocolate cream eclair is easy. Attaining another educational qualification, achieving a new skill, acquiring the ability to play a musical instrument, to learn to speak another language. All of these ways of bettering yourself are hard. Starting a business, saving and investing in your business instead of spending, uh, using old second-hand furniture in your new startup instead of using your limited capital to lash out on a lavish things that make you feel luxurious. These are all hard things to do. And in every case, the easy thing to do is easy, but it's wrong. And this is true about everything. Maintaining your car is easier than letting it just go to rack and ruin. Taking care of your garden so it doesn't turn into a jungle, hard to do. Easier to just let it go. And so that is why good people are warriors all the time. And the best people are not just warriors, but they are happy warriors. You can't help but be a warrior if you want to succeed in this life. Um, getting married is hard. It imposes restrictions on one. That's what commitment means. It is harder than just hanging out. All of these things are obvious. You want something, you want a new television set, there are two ways. One is to join the barbaric mobs roaming the street and break a window of a store and take one. The police are not going to do anything, so why not? That's one way of achieving it. The other is to save up your hard-earned money until you've got enough to go and buy it. There's no question about which one is easier and which one is harder, but there's also no question about which way is on its way to shattering civilization. And um, clearly, we know that being happy warriors is not easy, but it is the best way, certainly over the long term and very often over the short as well. And so that brings us to an understanding that when I teach you ancient Jewish wisdom, I am exposing you to a way of thinking that could hardly be at more odds with the culture out there. And so you by now, if you are a regular listener, and I salute you if you are, because to be honest, listening to this show is much harder than reading or listening to things that massage you with warm butter, which I never do. Because you can read things that tell you exactly what is most comfortable for you to hear. And 
It's nothing but a massage with warm butter, which does absolutely nothing for you whatsoever. And so, for example, uh, there is a very popular left-leaning sort of social website, and I'm not going to advertise it by mentioning it because it's irrelevant. Uh, you truly will gain nothing by going there. But uh, they raise the question of, should you lose your job over an affair? And naturally, the conclusion is, of course not, right? Your sex life is nobody else's business other than the person you're with. And, uh, and so it goes. In other words, saying, look, um, whilst... And they pay lip service. Well, of course, most married people are not in favor of infidelity. But things happen, right? And so this is nothing but a massage with warm butter. And worse than that, it is a depiction of a world that is only physical with no spiritual aspects to it at all. And so their question is... Um, you know, as they say, does having an affair lead you to make bad decisions across the board? Does it impact your ability to lead, manage, or govern? And the answer is that if you believe that we are nothing but animals, then the only way to answer that is, no, of course not. Sex is just sex, and what on earth does that have to do with your ability to pull a plow or get milked or yield wool? Obviously nothing at all. But if, on the other hand, you are exposed to a timeless truth that we human beings are not just body, we're body and soul wrapped up together. We live in a world in which we not only have physical needs like water and oxygen and food, but we also have spiritual needs like the esteem of other people, relationships, uh, meaning, meaning in our lives that we know on a deep level that we're not just eating and drinking and defecating and procreating and dying, but that we're living for something beyond merely a physical existence, then you would know that without question, sex always involves a moral dimension. And therefore, having an affair involves a moral failing. Now, look, um, this is not a show about uh, judgmentalism in a personal kind of a way. Uh, as the rabbi who has, as a rabbi who has served a congregation, uh, I've had my fair share of dealing with distraught couples trying to cope with the reality of an affair, and uh, I I know the torment, I know the agony, uh, I and I do understand. Um, and when the person sometimes says, uh, you know, it, it just happened. I, no, it really didn't just happen. Um, you can clip a sidewalk with your car and damage your tire. That just happens. Um, you can trip on something and fall. That just happens. But you cannot have a sexual relationship with another person that just happened. No, it doesn't just happen. Uh, it does involve n not only one, but a sequence of decisions in which the person made bad decisions. It didn't just happen. Uh, so obviously uh, when, uh, and there was, I mean, you may remember when, um, when General Petraeus lost his job over an affair, 
uh, way back in the early, uh, like 2010, 2011, somewhere there. Uh, what, you know, what did people say? Well, there was a lot of concern. Well, uh, is is it right? Should he? Yeah. And, and the answer is that, yes, there is a difference. There really is a difference between somebody who sticks to a marriage and somebody who doesn't. Uh, it's not to say that it's a fatal thing, and it's not to say that you can never come back from it, but it is to say that um, a, a moral weakness occurred. Now, does that mean that it'll reoccur? Not necessarily. Does it mean it will play out in your job? Not necessarily. But to say that it is irrelevant is to reveal a profound ignorance about how the world really works. And these are things that are, are unpopular uh, to say. And as we know, uh, the culture is merciless about people who say things that are unacceptable. Well, if I were not to tell you the permanent principles of how the world really works, I would be wasting your time. And that is a sin only a little less than murder. Because whilst murder takes away all the rest of the victim's life, wasting their time takes away a slice of their life. Qualitatively, it's a bad, bad thing. Quantitatively, I understand it's not the same as murder. But neither is it nothing. So you should know I take the responsibility of not wasting your time. I take that responsibility incredibly seriously. So I, with caution, speak about a movie. And I do say at the outset, I am not recommending that you see it. I'm not saying you shouldn't either. This is your own decision. But um, please don't take the fact that I'm talking about this movie as my recommendation that you should take uh, an hour and 40 minutes of your life and devote it to this movie. As a matter of fact, by the time I'm finished talking about it, I will have done you a profound service. You'll know everything you need to know of any importance about this movie without actually having had to spend the time. The movie was made in 2014. It's called Barefoot, and it stars Scott Speedman and Evan Rachel Wood. Two credible and worthwhile actors, uh, actor and actress. I will not call a female an actor, uh, even though that's now the official terminology. Um, it's also got one other notable actor in it. It's not significant. Made in 2014. In 2005, a German movie called Barfuss, which is German for barefoot, was made with same concept, okay? And uh, I did not watch that movie. I looked at the at the trailer and I, I looked at slices of it. Um, and uh, actually, I'm not sure that it was as good from the point of view I'm discussing as the American version in 2014. I think there might even have been some connection between the screenwriters of both. I don't know the details, not that important. But let me tell you a little bit about um, about Barefoot starring Scott Speedman and Evan Rachel Wood. He plays a rebellious trust funder kid who is 
and it, and it makes it very clear early on in in the movie admittedly heavily handed but i think the movie is meant to be um a a, a, a metaphor it's meant to be a a story uh, really a morality play if you like so yes uh and i will tell you this that the official critics hated this movie people liked it it actually made a few dollars so uh, it's kind of interesting in one of those cases you always know when the people liked it and the critics didn't you've kind of got a mini replay of the presidential election of 2016 you've got a kind of mini replay of how people feel about masks and the way americans have been turned into petty little tyrants um, attacking one another virtue shaming over wearing masks monitoring whether other people are wearing masks properly enough Again, those people who have bought into the, uh, the, the, the exaggerated and uh, political response of the government and of authorities to COVID-19 uh, think that wearing masks is critically important. Uh, they think that it's very important that children do not, that schools don't reopen until we can 100% guarantee the safety of children. Hey, here's an idea. How about we don't pay teachers till schools reopen? Right now, the teachers are, oh, we don't want to take the chance of injuring children. We don't want to reopen the school. Yeah, right. If I was being paid to have a long-term vacation, I wouldn't want to work either. I get it. So how about we uh, tell the teachers, hey, you know what? No work, no pay, like everyone else in America. Uh, but no, of course, that won't happen at all. Uh, the division in America very much matches the division between uh, theater and movie critics and the rest of us who actually buy the tickets and put ourselves in the seats. So, um, uh, so yes, uh, it, it's a little bit uh, heavy-handed, but again, since I'm not recommending you see it, it really doesn't matter. I did this for you. I actually did. This is happens to be one I actually uh, gave an hour and a half of my life to, uh, but it was with the intention of being able to share something with you that I thought was important. And uh, and here he is. Scott Speedsman plays a guy called Jay, and. Um, he, he 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 very quickly reveals himself in the first few minutes of the uh, of the movie as um, as a as a really go nowhere loser. Uh, he may come from a wealthy family, but he hangs out in strip clubs. He has one night stands. He has gambling debts, and um, and he really is the black sheep of the family. Uh, he was. Um, uh, he was as a parole for a uh, some misdemeanor. He's working as a janitor at a psychiatric hospital, and um, this is part of the probation he's on. And Evan Rachel Wood is one of the patients at that hospital. We don't know that much about her at the moment, but she's a patient there. Um, so here's the thing. Interestingly enough, the name of her character is Daisy, and the, as I told you, the name of his character is Jay. Well, that's a little bit difficult to ignore because Scott Fitzgerald wrote a novel called The Great Gatsby. And in The Great Gatsby, Jay Gatsby loves Daisy Buchanan. So, 
because I don't think people spend the millions of dollars that it takes to make a movie without really thinking things through. Uh, yes, and I know there are occasional goofs and errors in movies, but by and large, I don't believe, and again, I'd, I'd, could I be wrong? Uh, yes, but I don't think a whole lot happens on a movie that wasn't planned and worked out. Just look at the list of people at the end of every movie involved. There are so many people. In other words, the responsibilities for everything in the movie, not just continuity, but everything, is divided up among many, many, many specialists. And uh, and so I don't think a lot of accidents happen. To name the two characters, Jay and Daisy, uh, in an America that, you know, a lot of people know the, the novel and the movie The Great Gatsby. People know about that. That can hardly be a complete accident. And what is the important factor there? And again, this is now me talking. I'm speculating here. It's my judgment. And that is that um, the, the, the pain and the, and the anguish in Jay's life is that uh, he wants Daisy. And he goes off to fight in World War II. And meanwhile, Daisy marries Tom and uh, it's all very sad. But in order to make himself worthy of Daisy, uh, what does Jay do? He has to make a lot of money. Why? Because Daisy comes from a wealthy family. And so part of, of the tragedy here is that uh, Jay realizes that with Daisy being wealthy and him being poor, he, he can't go ahead and try to marry her this is not this is not right now that's very important because in my view the theme of barefoot is exactly the reverse of that so let me just uh, depart from that for one moment and do a little bit of a side journey here and i know that you have the mental discipline to be able to handle a slight little side journey. I'm going to tell you of a, uh, a number of very prestigious studies, a number of articles and reviews that are highly regarded. And I'm going to work my way through one of these with you briefly. Um, it's headed, Divorce Rates Affected by Women Out-Earning Husbands. Relationships between men and women are evolving. And I'm going to give you my little uh, but very important uh, corrections to the text. So they say relationships between men and women are evolving, and I say not so much. Please understand that relationships between men and women are pretty much what they've always been in spite of social pressure, attempting to modify them. And doing so is as futile as it was for King Canute in English mythology, trying to hold back the tide as a demonstration of his regal power. Uh, 
changing the relationship between men and women are evolved? Uh, no, not so much. I'll continue with the article. While much of these changes, should have said many of these changes, but uh, let's not correct every English mistake. While much of these changes are welcome, there is no denying that some people are able to manage them better than others. As women continue to excel at their careers, there are many couples that see traditional gender roles flipped. The women are earning more money than the men. If this describes you and your partner, you might have concerns about how this will affect your relationship in the long run. Though it is not a guarantee, researchers are warning. Yes, researchers are warning that women who out-earn their husbands, well, that raises the risk of the marriage ending in divorce. Okay, now, all right, that's, that is a finding. Not only is it a true finding, but that actually does correspond with ancient Jewish wisdom. And continuing with the article, the most recent findings from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that's a government agency, say that over a third of wives in the U.S. are earning more money than their husbands. Though this is welcome news for many people, there are still very strong societal norms that say men should be the family breadwinners. No, it's actually not a societal norm. It's in the, actually, it's in the DNA, it's in the molecular structure, it's in the very basis of masculinity. Um, further, it could make a couple more likely to divorce. When a husband doesn't work full-time, he and his wife have a 33% higher risk of divorce. Yeah, all right, that part's true. These findings seem to line up with pervasive attitudes that say it is the man's job to earn money. No, that's not a pervasive attitude. That, my friends, is a reality. Now, I'm not saying it can never work. And I know that uh, many of you have reached out to me in the Ask the Rabbi column and in letters to me through our website to speak about the circumstances in which you are, in which uh, the wife is out-earning the husband, and, and I, I try and be helpful on that. It doesn't have to be a problem as long as both are wise and both understand what's going on, and both also see an end to uh, this situation. Um, only continuing again, only 25% of respondents to a Pew survey think it is extremely important for mothers to financially provide for their children, but 40% think that the same standard applies for fathers. Three, I don't know what that means. Sorry, I shouldn't even read that part. It's nonsense. Three quarters of survey respondents claim that raising children is more difficult due to women being part of the workforce. Why would this affect divorce rates, they ask? Experts speculate. Now, you know what my intuitive reaction is when I hear or read experts say or experts speculate or experts state that older generations' beliefs about women's roles may influence how husbands and wives feel about one another's earning potential. Oh, this is just old, primitive, older generations' belief, but it's nothing real. Well, it is. Continuing the article, the fact that women still frequently encounter a glass ceiling in the workplace can also convince men that it is normal and even preferable for them to earn more money than their wives. No, it's nothing like that. First of all, there's pretty much no glass ceiling in the workplace other than in a very few situations. The glass ceiling is a wrong conclusion drawing from the misreading of statistics, completely ignoring the fact that women make different choices than men. A very high proportion, 80% plus, of female physicians, this is not in the article, this is me quoting from something else, uh, do not work full-time. They work part-time. 
That means female physicians earn less than male physicians because their choice is to work four days a week instead of six days a week. That's what most female doctors do. So um, there it is. Okay, so the point is that the culture out there insists that there is nothing immutable in human nature. The culture insists that since we are nothing but physical entities, nothing but sophisticated animals, no more than about nine and a half dollars worth of common chemicals strung together cunningly to produce this kind of animal called a a talking chimpanzee or a homo sapiens, uh, then obviously whichever one earns, whichever one pulls the plow, shouldn't make any difference. But you see, that isn't the case. The difference between the first and second chapter of Genesis, and I explain this in another program, uh, in another course, the difference is that many people wrongly assume that the second chapter of Genesis just repeats the story of creation, but in a slightly different way, uh, whereas the first chapter is the first story of creation. And the answer is, uh, as I explain in uh, my Scrolling Through Scripture program, that no, I show you the examples of how the first chapter is a description of the creation of physical reality, and the second chapter is a description of the creation of spiritual reality. In the first chapter of Genesis, there's very little difference between the, the creation of male and female. In the first chapter, God created male and female. In the second chapter, there's a huge difference. God created male, and then male goes to put to sleep and anesthesia, and woman is extracted, and it's a whole different story. And uh, with a whole lot of other information that I'm not going into in this program, uh, we see that the differences between male and female are huge and profound, but they are spiritual, not so much physical. And so if you live in a world such as most left-leaning elites do today, a world that is only physical, well, then obviously the only difference between male and female is plumbing. And it's, uh, it's trivial. It's not a huge and important difference. And from their point of view, in a physical-only world, that's true, but they're wrong because it's not a physical-only world. And thinking it is, you will be tripped up painfully by reality. And uh, the second chapter of Genesis reveals and unpacks the spiritual qualities. Now, I tell you all of that uh, to go back to the great Gatsby. And and part of the reason that the book has withstood the test of time so far, and people still read it, is because on a deep and sometimes subconscious level, people realize that certain real truths are being revealed. And that Scott Fitzgerald is saying here, hey, you know what, Gatsby, Jay Gatsby, didn't stand a chance with Daisy until he made money, because there would be absolutely no vulnerability on her part. There would be no surrender on her part. She is immensely wealthy and secure. He isn't. And so you would have a subtle spiritual reversal of roles, and it would be a marriage that would be unsatisfying to him and her, and eventually probably doomed to divorce. So 
I suspect that this is why the creators of the movie Barefoot made the protagonists Jay and Daisy, because here we're going to see an entirely different story. Uh, but meanwhile, let me go back. So here we've got um, rebellious black sheep of the family uh, sweeping the floors in the uh, mental institution. And uh, Daisy, we don't know why, but she's one of the patients there. Meanwhile, Jay has promised his folks that he's going to come home to their mansion in New Orleans for his brother's wedding. And um, in order to try and placate his parents, who are very, very disappointed in him, and also in the hope of maybe um, hitting his dad up for $40,000 to pay off a gambling debt to some uh, thugs who are uh, threatening to do him grievous bodily harm, uh, he wants to reassure his parents that he's turned over a new leaf and that he's not the miserable, dissolute layabout that he really is. And to do that, he's going to uh, bring home a girlfriend. And he tells them on the phone, oh, yes, I've got the steady girlfriend. She's quite wonderful. And they want to know her name. And he, he gropes around for a moment and he says, Daisy. And now, he doesn't know what he's going to do. But uh, meanwhile, walking through the hospital one night, he sees another one of the janitors um, telling Daisy, who is very gullible, she's, um, she, she's not world-wise at all, and he's telling her that he's a doctor and he needs to give her a physical examination, and you get a pretty good idea of what this janitor intends to do to Daisy. Uh, Jay um, comes in, and here's the first time you see that you know, there, there's a little bit of a good upbringing there. The fact is he had a, a good family raising him. He does have a sense of what values are. Things have gone horribly wrong in his life, but uh, he attacks the other um, janitor, and he says, he and he tells Daisy, um, you know, get back into bed, stay there, and he was going to hurt you. You know, don't, don't listen to him. Um, anyway, we discover that she's been raised by... Um, by her mom, who clearly had mental problems of her own. Daisy's been raised at home in isolation uh, with nothing but her mother and television to to educate her. And uh, she, they all, the, the medical staff believe she's hearing voices and she's schizophrenic. Um, but we gradually realize that it was her mother who was hearing voices and who was actually diagnosed as schizophrenic. Uh, not Daisy, but at the moment we don't know all this. And the next thing we know is Jay, who's got to dodge the thugs, the gambling thugs, uh, heads out of the hospital when he finishes his 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 uh, his uh, session, his shift that night after he saved Daisy from the other janitor. And he looks back and he sees Jay Daisy is following him, and she's not wearing shoes and that. And I'm not sure I know what the significance of that is, but she she doesn't like wearing shoes. She's barefoot, which is obviously the name of the movie. And she follows him, and he's you know he doesn't want any of this. Um, but um, all of a sudden he thinks to himself, wait a sec, she could be the solution to my problem, and uh, he talks her into going with him as his girlfriend to New Orleans for the family wedding. And there in New Orleans, uh, she impresses everyone with her simple charm and her authenticity, and, um, and, and here is, I think, uh, the important point I want to make. She looks at Jay as her savior. 
She looks at him. She, she hates the hospital. She's terrified of it. She's not uh, mentally ill. She's perfectly normal, but she is unsophisticated. And and by the way, I should mention that the movie is, um, as far as I recall, it really had nothing nothing bad. There may have been some bad words, but there's absolutely no uh, physical uh, impropriety. As a matter of fact, Daisy makes a point of mentioning at a certain point. You see, when they arrive at the mansion, she, as his girlfriend, uh, the mom, who seems a charming old money type lady, again, you know, Gatsby, and she uh, she welcomes Daisy very, very warmly, and uh, she's happy. She thinks maybe this is a chance that if her son is able to maintain a steady girlfriend relationship instead of his sequence of one-nighters, maybe there is hope. And uh, and she says, you know, we're in the South here, so you two will be occupying two rooms. And Daisy, quite shocked, says, well, of course, I, I would never share a room with a man. I've never done that. And um, and we we become aware that she is quite pure and unsullied, and um, and so all along on the airplane, you know, he's showing her how the world works. She's never been on an airplane before. Her interactions with people are simple, and you know, years ago, Peter Sellers played a gardener in uh, in a charming movie. And I don't remember the name of it, but it was the same idea. Over there, he was hailed as, as a great knowledgeable expert because he didn't know any better than to just tell the truth. And so there's a little bit of that with Daisy as well. But she is she is charming. And uh, and obviously, Rachel Evan, Evan Rachel Wood, the actress, uh, is hardly uh, difficult to look at. And that doesn't hurt at, at all. So um, So there she is. And she is seeing him uh, more and more as the person who's teaching her and looking after her and protecting her. And um, not surprisingly, uh, this quickly, oh, at, at one point, he, she, the last thing on earth she wants is to go back to the hospital. She just wants to stay with him. She's, um, she's almost uh, painfully grateful when she hears him describe her as his girlfriend, and she loves that. She just wants to be his girlfriend, and she feels she'd like to be more than that. And um, little by little, he finds himself taken to her. At one point, he relapses, and he is going to put her on a bus back to wherever the mental hospital is. I think it's Los Angeles. And he's going to put her on a bus back and send her back and tell the doctors that she's coming back. But at the last minute, he relents and realizes he can't do that. And he he, he accepts it as a given that she's with him. And... Uh, and little by little, this becomes, you know, she she moves quickly into the role of, of somebody who, who gets it, you know, and, and, and she trusts him. And because she trusts him and because she relies upon him and because she needs him, he responds in uh, with a spirit of responsibility and caring and nurturing and looking after her. And um, and they all live happily ever after. So yes, uh, it it you know realistic, of course not. Um, uh, you know, a woman raised as she was raised by her mom obviously would be more damaged. Turns out she's not damaged at all, 
and everything is lovely, but it's meant as a morality play, in my view, and that's how I took it. It's not meant as, oh, this is a realistic, romantic comedy. No, it's not that at all. And I, as I say, I think the choice of the names Daisy and Jay uh, are the clue that this was not meant as just a lighthearted little story. It's telling us something really interesting, and that is, can a, you know, a really... Um, let's say a bad guy be saved by a woman usually not but in a case where the guy does have a basic decency um, his parents and his family they're obviously very decent people you can see the lengths they go uh, to to try and make them feel welcome they even actually end up giving jay the money to to get out of debt to his uh, to his gambling mob and um, and so Jay does have a shred of decency in him that he has, you know, perhaps partially out of a spirit of, out of uh, rebellion to his parents, whatever it is, you know, thing, peculiar things happen in families. Life is complicated. Um, but in this situation where she needs him, yes, under those circumstances, it can happen. And so when she does not need him, a woman who doesn't need a man does not bring out the best in that man. A woman who does need a man does bring out the best. You see, um, one of the very worst feelings for a man, and if you are a man, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you are a woman and you don't understand this, you should, because you are either in the life of a man, and you should be very aware and very knowledgeable of this, or you will be, I hope, soon, and in that case, you should also. The very worst feeling for a man is a feeling of impotence, uh, losing his masculinity. By the way, that is one of the reasons uh, for the popularity of certain kinds of drugs. As to why this time in history there seems to be a pro proliferation of uh, men's problems that are described um, in public by two sequential letters of the alphabet reversed. Uh, it's not GF, which would have been the reversal of FG, uh, but it's something like that. Uh, and I don't want to be more specific because I know that families listen to this show. Uh, why it is right now in at this point of American life that there is such a proliferation of men suffering from impotence problems uh, is another topic that I will treat in another show. But for now, it is a reality and it is absolutely the most terrible thing for a man. And it's one of the reasons that many women don't understand how horrible it is, particularly the very first time that uh, on a marital level, uh, the, the man um, suffers an equipment failure, if you get my drift. And this is um, hugely more serious than, for a man than most women understand. Now, what even many men do not quite get is that the feeling of impotence is very, very tied in to a feeling of not being needed. Very little 
fills a man with more, let's call it potency, than a woman who needs him. Now, you know that what I'm saying is anathema to the public to the to the popular culture. We respect strong and independent women, and that's what society is moving towards. Well, society is an idiot because that is going to make for unhappy people, failed couples and unhappy people. I've spoken in the past about uh, studies that shown again one has to be very careful with studies but this is one that gets repeated in almost every psychology 101 course and it's it's very very fascinating but it's testing um the women that men find attractive by means of photographs and unbeknownst to the men there's a very deliberate way in which the women's occupations are listed and uh, it's not at all surprising to me, but it certainly is fascinating to see it confirmed that men find as more attractive women whose occupations are listed at the low end of the earning scale, right? Uh, preschool teachers, n- nurses, although nurses can do quite well, but um, women whose occupations are not at the domineering high end of the scale uh, women are perceived as more attractive. Now, the men in the test are usually completely unaware that they are subconsciously absorbing not just the information of the woman's comeliness, but also what she does to earn a living. And uh, this is why it is that, again, sadly, in American economic history, in the last it's 40 years, really, uh, when we saw the steel industries die in uh, Pennsylvania, in the Northeast, Uh, we had opportunity to see the impact of financial stress on men's health in this area. And one of the things we now know is that financial stress is hugely problematic for a man in this area of his physical fitness. Um, Financial stress has zero impact on a woman's a femininity, if you like. If anything, it enhances it. It doesn't diminish it. And so again, spiritual understanding of men and women that translates into reality, and that is um, women who do not have financial security are more attractive to men. Men who have financial insecurity, men who struggle in that area, are less attractive in their own eyes and in the eyes of of women with whom they live. These are are very difficult areas. I'm speaking about these things primarily in terms of spiritual understanding uh, and in full acknowledgement of the fact that there are obviously exceptions. There are ways in which couples work through these things, and there there are many uh, variables that, uh, that, that do play a role. But bottom line is, uh, this movie is this movie Barefoot is actually depicting something quite real, which is that not only does he find her compellingly attractive much more, and we see him with attractive women earlier in the in the movie. Uh, and again, by the way, as I, as I said before, uh, very little, if anything, is actually shown, uh, and so. 
that's why I do think that it seems as if the creators of the movie were aiming for a a, a spiritual metaphor, really, rather than just a, a silly piece of entertainment. And so, uh, uh, and so, in these circumstances, where he has a, a shred of goodness in him. Uh, he's he's been battling his parents and his family background, but she comes along and she absolutely needs him, and nothing speaks to his soul more powerfully. Even though, in terms of sexiness and just sort of sheer um, high beam attractiveness, she's not as attractive as some of the other women he's with earlier in the movie, but she needs him. And it changes everything. Um, and I, I stress, by the way, Daisy turns out not to have any mental problems at all. Uh, she, she, if anything, she took care of her mom. Even though she was ill-equipped to do so, her mom appears to have been a, a severely troubled woman. And, and Daisy had a, a rather um, handicapped upbringing. But what I found very interesting was that although the movie-going public liked it, and although uh, user reviews, in other words, reviews of ordinary men and women, liked the movie, the actual people who who review the movie professionally, part of the talking class of America, they hated the movie. And you can see why. Uh, They hated the idea that the sort of child bride idea. They hated the idea that she needed him and that she leaned on him. They hated the idea that he stepped up into that role and um, and and that their their love and their relationship grew from the fact that he was supporting her and giving to her and taking care of her. And she, for her part, took on the job of making him feel better in terms of food and not not uh, physically, by the way. No, um, as I stressed, there was none of that. But um, in building him up, and she does this, you know, remarkably in, in terms of making her his family feel that, you know, she speaks him up. And so it's it's a classic, beautiful relationship where he takes care of her physical needs and she provides a cocoon, a home, a haven of emotional security for him. And uh, and there it is. You know, in that sense, the movie really, um, I think, succeeded. The, the reviewers, however, were very funny. Oh, this movie is offensive in its portrayal of mental illness. I have no idea what they're talking about. Um, it it absolutely wasn't. The the doctors are, are perfectly okay. They're trying to do their job. Um, listen to this. One of the reviewers said, the romantic relationship that gradually blossoms between Daisy and Jay feels disturbingly pedophilic. See, and that's a way of using trigger words. I mean, pedophile, what a frightening, horrible, dangerous word, isn't it? Pedophile. And so, again, you know, he doesn't lay a hand on her. There is, this is deliberately not sexual. This is deliberately an emotional building of a relationship. And, um, and yes, it's, it's between a, a, a damaged guy and a, a young woman who leans on him and makes him step up in order to be her support. Disturbingly pedophilic. I mean, gosh, that reveals so much about the culture today that they can say that. 
Um, here's another review. The emotionally ill have enough stigmas to contend with. They don't need the patronizing yet popular movie. One of their just like us, only, you know, more innocent. Treating someone like a rare and lovely child isn't treating them like an adult or an equal. <laughs> I mean, just totally missing the point. Um, listen to this one. Jay's interest in this naive girl child remains vaguely creepy. Look, um, the fact is that the overwhelming majority of men uh, um, would love to marry a pure woman. They would. Now, you are, most men don't believe that there are pure women out there. And uh, I, have, I have discussed this, this matter before on different shows. But um, the, the fact that she is pure... I'm sure that plays a part also in, in how the producers want to depict Jay's protective feelings. In other words, a man feels more protective towards the woman with whom he, she, let me be specific about the female side for the moment. I won't talk about the, that's a totally different topic. But a man feels in a different way more protective uh, towards a, a woman uh, for whom he is her first man. And this is one of the reasons that you'll hear dissolute and miserable adolescent males all the time talking about, oh, you know, I, I don't want to date a virgin, I don't want to do that, because they recognize the responsibility that comes along with playing that role. Deep down on some level, they don't want that responsibility. But obviously, uh, to the man who does find himself in the good fortune of marrying a woman who has held herself pure for marriage, feels an enormous responsibility. And what's more, if in addition to that, she says to him, I want the privilege of being your wife. I want to be the mother of our children, and I want to do that seriously. I want to create a home. I want to take care of you because you are going to be taking care of me. That kind of relationship pulls out something very different in a man than does a relationship where the woman and the man simply establish a socioeconomic relationship. We'll both live under the same roof. Yes, we got married. No, we didn't. Makes no difference. Uh, we're both working. We've both got careers. We'll find a way of sharing the inevitable work of maintaining a home. Well, obviously, he doesn't feel exactly the same. I mean, that's perfectly natural, isn't it? Um, should he? Well, it's like saying, should a, should a child fly to school by flapping its wings? You're, it's not real. It's simply not real. Uh, and the notion that popular culture has that we are simply able to change the nature of masculinity and change the nature of femininity by insisting long enough that a woman must feel strong and independent, she shouldn't need a man, or that this is going to change things, it's never actually going to, ch other than for a small, small, small proportion of women, overwhelmingly for the majority of women, all that kind of lecturing that they get from sometimes from their moms, from their schools, from their teachers, from university or college, all the time diminishing the role to such a way, by the way, that housewife, which is a beautiful word, 
gets demeaned into what is an embarrassing, horrible word to the point where even many good women do not want to be described as a housewife. And I say, more's the pity. I don't think it's in any way demeaning. It's an incredibly uh, honorable and um, uplifting title if you understand how the world really works. And so, uh, yeah, obviously a man does feel differently towards a woman who, if you like, does him the honor of placing herself in his hands. Now, I understand the problems, and I understand as the father of daughters, believe me, uh, it is not without concern, because after all, you worry. You know, God forbid, you know, what happens to a, a woman whose marriage does founder, and now she is left to her own devices, and she doesn't have a, ha- a high-powered career to go back to. Hmm. Right. Well, uh, certainly hard and certainly problematic, but again, for another time, I'd have to say. Now, uh, I read many business magazines. I read many magazines in general, but I read many business magazines in, in order to not only see what's going on in the world of business and the world of culture, but also to be able to tell you things. And so, um, uh, one of those magazines is uh, is Market Watch, which I think uh, has some very very interesting things from time to time. And um, listen to to this one. Uh, it could be a race to the finish in more ways than one. When wives earn more than their husbands, some men just can't handle it. And so this is turned into, you see, we can't handle it when women uh, when our wives earn more than we do. Uh, there are so many ways to uh, to ridicule that article. But again, it is coming from the point of view that we are only physical, not spiritual. And that, by the way, is uh, the government's response to COVID-19, the exaggerated and insane um, lockdowns and destruction of normality and the shattering of small business. You'll notice Facebook, Amazon, Apple, uh, these uh, these companies are doing just fine. It's the little it's the little business that's being shattered. That's always what socialism does. And the uh, the response of government is once again to treat us as if we're animals, not human beings, as if we're only bodies, not souls. And no, Fred, your goldfish does not have a soul. Um, it may have feelings, uh, and I don't even know exactly what those would be. But in other words, it experiences fear. But is that a feeling or an instinct? I have no idea. But um, a soul it doesn't have. And again, if we were nothing but animals, then yes, spray us with insecticides, put us through uh, dips, inject us, do whatever. If we're just animals that belong to the state then you do whatever you can do to keep us physically healthy because you do not acknowledge that we have spiritual needs just every bit as important as our physical needs and our spiritual needs are to connect with other people not to view everybody else with a surly suspicious glare they are probably carrying the disease and they're going to infect us no we need connection 
And yes, we do need to be able to go and sit in the coffee shop and do some work and smile at other people who are there or roll our eyes at something that happens or the weather. Yes, we do need those connections, but that's only because we're spiritual beings. A government that has decided that spirituality doesn't exist and uh, only a physical world is real, well, they're doing exactly the natural thing. Yeah, so what? Lock people up, keep them away from it. So what if they lose their businesses? Doesn't matter. We'll take care of them. We're the farmers in the Beltway. We'll supply them with enough food. And that's exactly what they're doing. All of this overreaction flowing from a fundamental error, and that is that human beings are not just body. We're body and soul. And so if we were just body, yes, when wives earn more than husbands, some men just can't handle it. But we're not. We are body and soul. And the soul of a man is different from the soul of a woman. It is a difference. We are spiritually different. And uh, so they quote the story. My wife has always earned more money than me, says the man. And for a while, it absolutely killed our sex life. Dead. I'm a trial lawyer now, but from 2006 to 2016, I didn't make a dime. I went back to school to get my master's and PhD and to try and break into academia. Dave Peters was one of several men who told, um, you know what, I'm not going to say which magazine this is, uh, who told magazine what it was like when their wives earned more money than they did. Sometimes it worked out okay, but other times it caused problems. He, Peter said his relationship ran into difficulty because of how his wife handled their disparity in income. His wife made 180000 a year, and he said she was the one who always had the final word when it came to vacations, where they ate dinner and other household bills. The kids would ask her for money, and when she said no, they'd respond, fine, I'll ask dad then, he added, and she would snort, yeah, sure. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> yes. This is sort of elementary. If you if you understand ancient Jewish wisdom and you know anything about how the world really works, this is like a course one A. You know, we covered this early on. This is not that hard to understand. It gets a little more complicated. It gets a little harder, and particularly for women who have been so effectively propagandized, um, such women even find it difficult. To acknowledge if I were to say something, which, again, is probably going to get me into trouble because somebody listening to the show is going to share it. And I love you sharing the show, but somebody's going to share it with somebody who's just out to make trouble. Uh, but I'll say it anyway, and that is that women feel something profoundly sensual and desirable and thrilling about the act of surrender. Are there exceptions? Yes, Agatha, I know you're different. But generally speaking, women love being with a take-charge man, a man who knows what he's doing and says, don't worry, I've got it, I'll take care of it. Uh, women love watching a man fix something that got broken and just say, don't worry about it, I'll, fix it. I'll, I'll get this right. Because a man who can move the world moves a woman's heart as well. A man who can impact and control his environment is a man that women wish to surrender to. And so, yes, I look, I understand. Uh, I'm t speaking about this stuff as, as abstract truths, 
But I know full well that the real world is a complicated and messy place. But uh, b- but here it is. It it is a reality. Another financial magazine that I look at is Forbes magazine. And would you believe this article? Uh, now Forbes every now and then has something really good, and if they have to pull this off, it won't be the first time it it got an article gets yanked. Uh, they did an article a few years ago speaking about women's chances of getting married, again, in a in a comparative earnings situation and, um, uh, you know, acknowledging that most women would rather marry a man who has more money than they do. But if a woman is making a whole lot of money, it becomes very, very difficult to marry a man who has more and problems ensue. So uh, as is the case in this world of ours, Uh, we have to make decisions. And it's never between good and bad. That would be easy. Decisions are always between good and better or bad and worse. And so uh, a woman says, you know, I I must fulfill my my potential. I've got to build my career and then I'll get married. And then it turns out that she has built her career, but it's kind of really tough to get married. And Forbes wrote about that, and there was such an outroar that they pulled the article in an act of cowardly surrender. Um, But here's one that um, I don't think they've pulled, uh, although I uh, downloaded and printed it uh, several years back, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's still there. And it's an article about a study regarding domestic violence. And again, um, boyfriends and girlfriends are not the same as married couples. They just aren't. Let's just make that clear. Um, And let's also clear that in the world of popular culture, they no longer make a difference. And so they speak about uh, domestic violence in couples. They don't say in marriages because the figure in traditional marriages is much lower than in couples. But uh, that's not the point. You want to hear the point here? Here they have uncovered, I'll just tell it to you because it's so, I mean, it really hit me between the eyes. And that is uh, women suffer more domestic violence when they earn as much as the men with whom they are living. Wow. Wow. Uh, Or to quote the research, um, women who work face a greater risk of violence at the hands of their romantic partners, romantic partners, did you catch that, than women who don't. Um, And then now they give the explanation. And again, this is laughable. Lending credence to the notion that female employment threatens men's authority in relationship dynamics. No, I don't think that's true at all. Look, Men shouldn't hit women, period. Uh, If a woman hits you, I don't think you should hit her back. I think you should restrain her and um, hold her arms and prevent her from hitting you. But I don't think you should hit... uh, I don't think there's any time a woman should hit... A a man should hit a woman. I don't think there's a time a woman should hit a man either. But, you know, things happen. So um, uh, this was uh, two women researchers at Sam Houston State University in Texas, and the, uh, the research was published by the university's Crime Victims Institute. Anyways, um, they've got all the reasoning wrong, but the fact they've uncovered remains very interesting. And as far as the right reason, well, you can sort of get it, can't you? It's not hard to see in the sense that um, uh, 
uh, a man, again, going back to Jay and Daisy, um, if a man is needed by her, then his protective instincts are aroused, and the last thing on earth he's going to do is hurt her. He's going to protect her and defend her. That's what he's going to do. But if she's a socioeconomic partner, and uh, they both are cooking meals, and they're both cleaning the house, even though men really do not care if the house is that. Most men don't care much about cleanliness. Some great men do, but most don't. And uh, But most women do want a clean house and consider cleaning to be actually a satisfying activity. Yes, guys, I know it's hard to understand, and uh, it's just take it as a reality. It happens to be true. And uh, no man enjoys cleaning. Women do. Very few men enjoy cleaning, I should say. There are some who do. But um, it's, it is a male-female difference. And so a man who is supporting his wife, his housewife, and she depends upon him, obviously there's a totally different feeling. But if she's just a socioeconomic partner, she's one of the guys. I earn, she earns. She cleans, I have to clean. She cooks one night, I clean one night. Well, hey, you know what? If we're just buddies and you annoy me, then uh, I punch you out. Again, no excuse for abominable and unforgivable behavior. But on an abstract level, I understand what's going on. And their attempts in this uh, study, their attempts to find the reason are laughable and, again, completely wrong based on the underlying and fundamental error that, no, we are not just animals. We are not only bodies. We are bodies and soul. And that makes all the difference. If you recognize that we are souls as well as bodies, you would never take the governmental actions to turn us all into petty little tyrants, chiding one another for not wearing our masks or not wearing them properly. And you're seeing more and more of this in uh, the culture out there. That's, I mean, people are yelling at each other, attacking one another, I should mention. That's also happening. But again, part of what a decaying society leads towards the road to ultimate decay of a healthy society leads through socialism. And part of socialism is to destroy the relationships between individuals in a society and strengthen the relationships between each individual and the central hub of government. So in other words, hub and spokes is the socialist vision and the healthy Judeo-Christian city model is a million neural connections between people, individuals, clubs, civic organizations, all kinds of relationships so that government is the last recourse, not the first. Socialism wants government to be the first recourse. And destroying small business and destroying the relationships between people is undeniably uh, one of the steps on the road to the eventual decay, de decadence, and destruction of a great society. Uh, one of the uh, talking heads out there um, is a woman called Suzanne uh, Venkner. And um, she's, she's interesting um, because, for one thing, she wrote a book called How to Choose a Husband and uh, what's it called, How to Choose a Husband and Make Peace with Marriage. Now, it sounds like she is a reformed 
feminist, I think. Um, she certainly uh, is no longer one. And so she wrote this book, How to Choose a Husband and Make Peace with Marriage. And again, I'm not necessarily recommending, I'm very, very careful before I recommend a book or anything that'll take up your time. But I'm telling you about it anyways. <clears throat> and uh, the, the book's been out for a few years, but let me just read to you some of the chapter headings of the book. Um, Never Rely on a Man, Slutville, Expectations. So... Um, these are the the chapter headings in the first part of the book where the, that section of the book is called You Go Girl! Uh, but then she moves into the next section of the book which is uh, subtitled The 12-Step Program. And uh, step number one is Live an Examined Life. Get over yourself. Step number three is hugely controversial. Return to Femininity. The opposite of feminism is not masculinism. The opposite of feminism is femininity because aggressive, hardcore feminism has as one of its goal the destruction of femininity. And femininity is basically what attracts a man at the deepest soul and spiritual level. He is searching for his complement. At the deepest level... He wants to feel fulfilled as a potent masculine man, but in order to do that, he has to be complemented by a deeply feminine woman. And uh, Suzanne Wengner, and I'll tell you the other chapters in a moment, but uh, she writes, when both male and females were employed, this is apropos of the study that showed that when there was violence uh, from a man to the woman he's living with, it was generally found to be in a case where they were both equal earners or she earned more, but hardly ever in a more, what we'd call a traditional circumstance. Um, when both male and females were employed, the odds of victimization were more than two times higher than when the male was the only breadwinner in the partnership. Lending support to the idea that female employment may challenge male authority and power in a relationship? No, it's nothing to do with that. It's just very simply that uh, when a man is looked up to as a protector, supporter, defender, he generally steps into that role. And when he is made to feel redundant, when he is made to feel unneeded, the resulting feeling is impotence. And it is, and ladies, I know you're going to resist what I'm telling you, but it is very easy. Please be aware of this. It is easy and it's natural and it's normal for a man who feels impotent to lash out in anger. That is very common, understandable, perfectly natural, perfectly normal. Desirable? Of course not. But please know that uh, the reactions on the part of a man who is feeling unneeded, a man who feels unneeded ends up feeling impotent. And the reaction to impotence is deep sadness and then anger, which may or may not coalesce into violence. And, um, and this is the, the reality. I mean, that is how the world really works. So her third of her 12 steps is in the book called How to Choose a Husband and Make Peace with Marriage, Return to Femininity. Uh, then she says, don't rely on love. Right. In other words, the idea is this is about commitment, not love. 
then she says, get a ring, not a roommate. Reject the green grass syndrome. Marry the accountant, not the artist. I mean, that's such a great title, and and she's right about that. I, I could speak, I could do a whole show just on that concept, and maybe I will. Then she, know your body. That's number eight. Number nine, accept you can't have it all. That's pretty mature. Uh, number 10, decide to stay. That's part of what commitment means. 11, no God, no peace. Wow. And I don't think she was a religious woman per se. I don't think so. But I don't know a whole lot about her. Um, number 12, learn how to be a wife. What do you bring to the table? And that's her number 12. So uh, it's all very interesting. Uh, what I find most interesting of all is the culture clash, where the popular culture out there, the elitist uh, ruling view, is that since we are just animals, sophisticated animals, creatures of the body, there is no such thing as the soul, there's no spiritual reality, well then, yes, everything else follows from there. Male and female is the same. You want to switch between one and the other, no problem. And uh, you want to have a, a marriage where men just have to learn to deal with big, strong, tough, independent women. Uh, yep, then that is going to happen naturally and inevitably, is it not, uh, from your initial worldview of a physical-only world, a body-only world. But if you've wised up and you are smart and you're a happy warrior and you've learned the spiritual realities are every bit as critical as the physical realities, uh, then you understand the difference between a man and a woman and that it is absurd to expect a marriage to exist when at its very foundations it violates the fundamental principles of happy and healthy male-female interaction. I mean, a man may as well go to his ophthalmologist and say, look, uh, I need you to give me something for my eyes. I like looking at the sun, usually around about noon. I like looking up at the sun and seeing if I can see any sunspots with my naked eye. And I've been having some vision problems lately. So could you do something for me? The ophthalmologist says, well, it may be too late, but if I can do anything for you, contingent on you stopping to look at the sun. The guy says, no, you don't understand. I'm the new reality. I'm the new man. I'm beyond that. And I want to prove that I am strong and I am able to look at the sun with impunity. And the ophthalmologist says, well, it's not with impunity. You're going to pay the price for that. And so it is, you know, well, we want a marriage of equals. That's what we want. We want a marriage where the man and the woman both do the same things. They both earn and they both they both do and the equality and egalitarianism in marriage. Well, then, yeah, you're going to pay the price for that, folks. It's, it's pretty simple because in this world, one thing is clear, and that is if you don't know the rules of the game, you lose. <laughs> I mean, how hard is that to catch on? What is, however, equally easy to catch on is that one of the rules of the game is that time does march on. And that means that other than telling you to please visit the website at rabbidaniellappin.com and that if you and your beloved have not yet listened together to an audio program called Madam, I'm Adam, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden, then you need to do that now. If you've not done it, then please do it. Just get this audio program at my website 
and set aside two hours. You don't have to do it all at once. You can do it in, you know, three or four sessions and sit down in nobody else, nobody disturbing you, phones out of the way. Just listen to this together. Pause it whenever you, one of you has something to say and talk about it and build your closeness through a deeper understanding of the spiritual reality of your relationship. It's called Madam, I'm Adam, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden. Go to youneedarabbi.com, youneedarabbi.com, or you can also go to rabbidaniellappin.com, same thing, and uh, you will find the store where you are able quite easily to read up more about the program Madam, I'm Adam. Make sure you get it if you have a relative, a loved one who is getting married, thinking of getting married, or is engaged, then for heaven's sake, absolutely, for heaven's sake and for theirs, please just get it for them. Will you do it? That's why I created this thing. That's what it's for. And the number of marriages that have experienced greater closeness, if my very welcome fan mail is anything to go by, is tremendous. So uh, for a relatively small investment, just make a difference in the male-female relationship of somebody you really care about. Uh, share the program, folks. Let others know about it. Uh, try and Try and share it with like-minded people if you possibly could. The less harassment I have to deal with, the more time I can spend doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and that is bringing ancient Jewish wisdom in an accessible and useful form to you. And um, so spread the word and contact us. Be in touch. Go to the website at rabbidaniellappin.com and in the section about us, you'll be able to actually uh, contact us. Love hearing from you. I love knowing what you think and what you feel. Thanks for being part of this show. I do hope you enjoyed it and that you found value. I really do. That perhaps is the most important thing of all. So until we are together again next week, I hope I am Rabbi Daniel Lappin wishing you a week of good times with your five F's, with your physical fitness, with your family, with your friendships, with your faith and with your finances. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.